0: Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another cracking instalment of the MapRound Show. Today, I'm joined by Brendan Kane, all the way from Mexico, of all places. Brendan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to connect with you and everybody that's tuning in for this. Yeah, exactly. So, um, if for those of you who don't know a bit of the backstory here, um, Brendan built a mi- or generated a million followers in 30 days. Uh, He's got an amazing agency called Hookpoint that's worked with Taylor Swift and Rihanna, MTV, IKEA, and many, many, many others. Um, And today we're going to be talking about social media growth, uh, influence, and all the meat and potatoes around that particular subject. So, Brendan, uh, for those of our viewers uh, around the world who potentially haven't heard about you and the great work that you've done, uh, why don't you kick us off with uh, the elevator pitch? What do we need to know?
1: Well, you know, it starts with how I got into social media. So it's not like I've just been doing this for a few years. I started in the earliest stages of it. I started in 2005, uh, you know, when Friendster and MySpace were the first players. And the way that I got into it is I wanted to be a film producer. And I went to film school, hoping to learn about the business side of the entertainment industry and quickly realized they don't teach you anything about business in film school. So I had to figure out another alternative. So I started a few internet companies while I was going to college just to learn to do an experiment. And when I moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in film, that's when the entertainment industry and a lot of the world started to reawaken to digital. So I basically leveraged that knowledge to go from making coffee copies and deliveries to starting a digital division for that studio, first studio I worked for. And I just continued on the path from there, building social technology platforms, advertising platforms for
0: some of the clients that you have mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, so just for our audience, why do you go to Mexico? So I know before we went live, you said you spend some of the time down there. What does being down in Mexico give you creatively?
1: It's two things. One, to me, it's just a very grounding place. Uh, and the other part is I just have friends that live down here. I have a good group of local friends that live here. So to me, community is always the most important thing of the place that you determine to spend your time. And, uh, because of the people I know here and because of the place that I'm in, I just kind of enjoy that having that grounded kind of community and energy when you're living, you know, a daily life of being an entrepreneur, which can be extremely stressful, as I'm sure, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. It's pretty stressful. I don't think this, the uncertainty goes away ever, does it? You know, it's,
1: it's a practice I work on a lot. Uh, it's, I think you have to. And I'm not by no means saying that I perfected it, but I, I think you have to live in uncertainty and be comfortable with it or learn to grow and be comfortable with it
0: because otherwise it, <clears throat> otherwise it just kind of eats you up mm. too quick. Yeah, it does. Um, it's like the only certainty is uncertainty. And I suppose the moment you accept that you get quite a lot of power with that. At least I found in my experience, like a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. It's again,
1: it's a very, um, simple concept is just be comfortable with uncertainty and everything will get easier, but it, it's not easy in practice of, you know, those stressful situations where you're like, well, what's going to happen next? Like, yeah, especially when you're running a
0: business and you employ a lot of people and things of that nature. Tell me, um, Brendan, how do you cope with anxiety? So this is quite a, a, a human truism with social media in general. It can be quite anxiety producing if you're following news or just looking at what's going on out in the world, um, how do you personally cope with managing, you know, your own anxiety as a, as a founder entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. And I would say it's really evolved over time. Um, I'm always integrating new practices. You know, obviously the one that most people know about is meditation. I've meditated for 10 years, but that only got me to a certain level. So I've, I've really gone through, again, several evolutions of that to really understand like a big part of our work, uh, is human psychology, understand why we as humans do things or don't do things. And that I love learning that stuff from the, the, the practical application of marketing and connecting people, but also in, in terms of pr- improving myself. So in terms of with myself, you know, meditations a big one breath work's Another one, um, I've dove pretty deep into psychedelics from a therapeutic standpoint. I also work with a neuroscientist out of London that helps with neurofeedback and really measuring brainwave states and reprogramming your brainwaves to um, reach its optimal state. So there's so many different things that I've explored over the years and continue to explore to really deal
0: with anxiety as it pertains to daily life and running a business. So um, so psychedelics, are you' talking about microdosing? I've done microdosing, but also full-on uh, journeys with the, the
1: the primary ones I've done is psilocybin mushrooms, uh, and then I've done BuFO once. but those are the two primary ones. I did do microdosing for a period of time. Um, and that helps, but I don't know that that, that really gets to the core of it because there's certain things that you can do that can help you cope with anxiety. But I've just realized in all the work that I do is you really need to release that underlying trauma that's stored in your system to really be able to understand and deal with anxiety, because otherwise you're kind of just putting a bandaid on the situation. And that's kind of what like microdosing is, is yeah, I can relieve anxiety, but it's not getting to the core issue of what's causing the
0: anxiety. Mm. So when you say you did a full on journey, what does that mean practically? Does this mean is it kind of like um I'm gonna use ayahuasca because people might may be more familiar and or aware of that particular journey, if you like. Is that kind of similar to what you're discovering when you try and when you're saying you need to figure out the kind of trauma uh that's underlying the anxiety as an example?
1: Yeah, so I can't speak to ayahuasca because I haven't done it. I know a lot of people that have. Um so I, I conceptually know what the experience is. I have found personally with psychedelics and people that i know that have been studying it for a very long time is really what it's doing is it's showing you the things that you need to work on the 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 drug itself is not fixing anything it's it's giving you light on the things that you need to work on in your in your life and then you need to go and take those recordings yeah
0: i got you so um going back to um Did the recording... Uh, No, no, that's fine. That was just a Zoom thing. I was getting irritated with the little thing on the top left. (laughs) I'm also OCD about perfection where I can make it. So no, you're all good. You're all good. Um, Yeah, so so fantastic. So let's go back to kind of, you know, what your main kind of, um, I suppose, thing that you're famous for is that, at least from my research anyway, um, is that you uh, built uh, or gained a following of a million in 30 days. So... What was the spark there that led you to, you know, taking on a challenge like that? Yeah. So
1: uh first off to give some context, myself and my team, it's not like we did this once and could never duplicate it. Like our team collectively has done about 60 billion views uh and over a hundred million followers for the projects that we've worked on. But the the spark, as you put it, for this, I would call it an experiment is I had wanted to do a book for some period of time, and I knew I needed a really strong hook, a really strong hook point in order to do it, because the blessing and the curse of where I started my career was in the film industry. And the blessing is you get to work on amazing projects. The curse is you have to come up with a strategy to push a piece of content that hundreds of millions of people need to know about in a matter of months. You don't have years, you don't have decades to do it. So you're trained to think as big as possible because you can't go into a meeting and think of and and propose something that's going to reach 100,000, a million people. It has to be in the tens of millions or the hundreds of millions of people. So whenever I think about an effective hook point, a way to grab people's attention, especially with a book, I need something that can really operate at the highest level. And there was a period of a few years where I just didn't feel like I had it. I didn't feel like I had the hook that was worth you know, investing in or that would grab attention at scale. Uh, so at the time, I was spending years creating and, develop, creating and developing strategies for professional athletes, celebrities, journalists, uh, and brands on how to really expand their audience, expand their awareness. So I had tested probably over 100,000 pieces of content over the course of a few years and really had a dialed in concept of what it really took to, to build an audience for scrap from scratch. And that's where one day I came up with the idea of a million followers in 30 days. It wasn't a matter of if I could do it, it as a matter of why I should do it. Because again, I had so much data to support that I knew it was possible. So I just called up a literary agent that I knew that has represented over $5 billion of the book sales. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this experiment. If I do it, Will you sign me as a client and get me a publishing deal? And he said yes. And then I went to a lot of my marketing expert friends to test the concept with them to say, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Would this be interesting? Would you read
0: a book on this?" And they said yes. So that really what sparked the the idea for it. Okay, and um, and what would you say is your intended outcome? Uh, you know, as a consequence of the book, is your intention to. Um, Help founder entrepreneurs, or just anybody who wants to, you know, gain a following or a social media influence yardstick, if you like. What's what is your intended outcome? The why behind the book? Like, what do you want? What's the change you want to see? I think it's it's
1: education of what it takes to succeed with social media, and and to be fully transparent and honest, the people that have the most success with working with us or our principles are the people that are already creating content and want to take the next step. People that have never created a piece of content or aren't creating content on a regular basis, I think they will gain a lot of insights from the book. There's a tremendous amount of value in there. But if you don't put it to practice, you're never really going to fully realize the results. So where we really excel uh, is working with content creators or brands that are creating content and really want to take it to that next level and are dedicated to, to putting in the work.
0: Yeah, I understand. So someone like myself, basically right? So produce a lot of content, want to kind of take it to the next level, moving to the US as an example, um, would be a kind of a sweet spot for you as a hook point agency?
1: Yeah, we're not really a a formal agency. We spend most of our time training pre-existing teams, training entrepreneurs, training corporations, or helping companies build teams. Um, Because we don't really, we don't produce any of the creative ourselves. We're not uh, you know, a traditional creative agency. Uh, because to me, I've learned over the years, like you have to hyper-focus in a specific area to be very good at it.
0: Yeah. I agree with you entirely. Almost like niching down on a particular value prop or, yeah. or industry. Um, so, uh, just, um, for, for our audience around the world who are potentially going, yeah, but you know, why do I need a massive social media following? Um, why does it matter to have a million followers as an example? What kind of positive outcomes can a founder entrepreneur, as an example, create for themselves?
1: Well, first off, do you really need a massive social audience? And the answer is no. There's many different ways that you can be successful in business, successful in life. I have built companies with no social media presence. So I am not one of these people that say you have to be on social media. Is there a massive opportunity? Yes, there's definitely a massive opportunity can help. In terms of how it can help, it can generate leads for the business. It can provide uh, awareness, engagement, sales. It can provide strategic partnerships. You can draw people to you. So at the end of the day, it's a tool to get you in front of a lot of people. Now, how you leverage that ability to get in front of a lot of people and turn that into commerce is different. But again you can focus and we work with a lot of B2B clients. You could focus on crafting a message for one person or 10 people or hundred people and drive massive profit off of it. So I am not the one that will ever sit here and say that you have to build a massive social audience. Uh, it's, it's not required for, for success.
0: Yeah. I think Kevin Kelly wrote that blog post back in 2008, a thousand true fans. And he was like, yeah, if you have a thousand true fans and you make a hundred dollars off each of those fans, you know, you're making X amount of money per month. So that means that's all you need to actually start building a lifestyle business for yourself. Do you subscribe? I don't know if you've read it or not, um, but um, do, you, yeah. do you subscribe to Kevin Kelly's philosophy? I mean, do you feel like it's still relevant in today's digital economy?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent it's relevant. Again, I go back to, there's not one way to be successful. There's many different ways to be successful. The, the, again, going back to my beginnings of starting in the film industry, I was trained to think the complete opposite of that. It was, how do we reach 100 million people? And out of those 100 million people, how do we sell, you know, several million tickets to a movie? So, my, the course of my career and the way that we work with clients is, Thousand True Fans is great. It's great for the solopreneur, the person that, that wants to, to live a certain lifestyle. Our core specialty is how do you scale? How do you go viral? How do you reach the masses and do high, highly scalable growth? So one of our core principles of virality, and we can get into it deeper if you want, is the, the algorithms. And there's a lot of misinformation about the algorithms that people ask me about all the time is, are the algorithms still pay to play? They were never pay to play. They will never be pay to play. And the reason I know this is because if that was the case, nobody would ever go viral. Now, there has been a shift because I remember when MySpace hit its first million users in 2005, 2006, you fast forward today, there's 4 billion people on social media pushing 200 billion messages into the world every day. So there's a lot more content out there. And the algorithms fundamentally have one goal and one goal only, retention, So the longer people spend on the platforms, consuming content, the more ads they can serve, the more money they make. So they are always going to favor content that holds attention for as long as possible. So when when we think about virality, we're looking, especially when we're talking about organic virality or organic success, you have to make your content interesting to the widest possible audience. Because the algorithms are looking for content that they can see to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people and hold attention. You know, This old paradigm of creating a specific message for a very specific niche audience is not right for organic. Can that still work for paid? Yes. But even with paid, you can get dinged in the auctions and your costs can go up if you're not really engaging the widest possible audience. So the real thing is, how do you make people care that know nothing about you? or may not even like your industry. It may not even like the the types of things that you're talking about. That's where really true success comes from
0: with social media. And a lot of people miss the boat with that. So as an example, this show has always been positioned around, you know, being for entrepreneurs. That's an example of uh, a niche that doesn't necessarily have mass wide appeal. That's kind of what you're describing. Stay with us.
1: Yes, yes, but I can give you an example of Gary Vaynerchuk who talks about entrepreneurship, Yeah, but he makes the general audience care about entrepreneurship. That's the real trick is making somebody that has never thought about being an entrepreneur, doesn't know what being an entrepreneur is, caring about what you're talking about. Does that mean that they have to become an entrepreneur? Not at all. I can give you a prime example. One of the references that we use a lot is there's a real estate agent named Ryan Serhant. And he represents high luxury property, like $10 million plus properties. So he has a very specific audience that drives his business. It's high net worth individuals. But if you look at his social content, especially on uh, YouTube, he does content like, I'm going to take you on a tour of a $250 million home. I'm going to show you what a $7 million closet looks like. Because he knows the general audience, even though they can't afford that, is interested to see what that looks like. And because the general audience is interested, the algorithms give him massive reach. So he'll generate millions of views on those videos. And then he knows out of those millions of people, if less, you know, if 1% of those people are his core target, he's still winning. And he said that he has sold 20, 30, $40 million properties off a single YouTube video. So it's kind of that kind of perspective is how do you make it interesting? There's another YouTuber named Graham Stefan who teaches finance to millennials, millennials typically don't care about finance, but he makes it interesting. Like his most viewed video is how I bought a Tesla for $78. So he talks about the finance behind the decision, how he made it happen. And
0: he's bringing in this
1: wide audience
0: to his his core message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally understand uh, kind of what you're saying and bringing the Gary Vaynerchuk model in because he shares quite a lot of universally human centric, let's just say ideas, self-worth, failure, that kind of stuff, getting over yourself, pressure, you know, societal pressure, peer pressure from school, uh, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so a lot of people, I suppose, resonate, um, with that. Um, and if you think about his social following, it's, it's probably, you know, the best model that I can think of, uh, Brendan, that, um, that works, you know, in terms of virality or exposure or whatever the case might be. Um, what are your thoughts on the idea of content recycling? So Gary, obviously, you know, he promotes, he does a video, recycles that to death. There's an article, there's a quote, there's a picture, da, da, da. And so out of one video, he might record, you know, or produce, or his team might produce, you know, 30 different clips, and then he would aggressively distribute those at scale. Um, in terms of content distribution slash production, um, do you subscribe to that philosophy? Is that something that you would recommend? To say a founder entrepreneur with a small team, um, and when does that model start to really become relevant?
1: Well, it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to go viral, I don't recommend it. If your goal is just to you know get content out there and you know just you're okay with reaching thousands or tens of thousands of people, then it's fine. You know, our core focus is how do you engineer virality, because vi- virality is not luck. It's it's a science Uh, to give you kind of an example. So we've spent the past seven years building a a viral content engineering system. It's a system that we've used to generate 60 billion views online. And um, there's a a YouTuber named Mr. Beast. And he's the number one, probably influencer in the world at this point, but he's got 200 million subscribers across all his channels. And he was recently on Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan asked him, well, how did you get good at YouTube? did you watch tutorials on YouTube? He's like, no, what I did is I found four other crazy lunatics. They were all high school dropouts. And for a thousand days straight, we reverse engineered virality for 10 hours a day. We would get on the Skype. We would talk about, you know, look at a thousand thumbnails, look at the shading on the thumbnails. We would look at how many edits were in a video. What was the pacing of a viral video? What was the, the opening three seconds? What was the title all to really understand the nuanced details of what it takes to engineer virality. If you really want to be good at social, that is the way to do it. Um, Cause the, the issue is when you're just churning out content, you're not effectively learning. You're not paying attention to the nuances of what the performance drivers are that drive success versus detract from success. Now with Gary, he's got an amazing team of thirty plus people working on his content, and his team is smart. So they pick up on those things. In addition, Gary has such an amazing personality that that personality also carries the formats that that they drive. So we don't personally um, subscribe to that method because we just we don't see consistent success. And and honestly, if you don't have this process of really doing the research, diving into the nuances. Of what's working, what's not working, and constantly testing it and refining it, you're ultimately going to fall flat. Like, sure, with TikTok, a lot of people are getting one, two, or three viral successes, but they don't understand why and they can't reproduce it over and over again. And the minute TikTok changes their algorithm or the minute TikTok um, becomes saturated, it's going to be very difficult to continue that
0: success. So, um, so I'm loving what I'm hearing. So as an example, if I, uh, if, if Alicia entrepreneur has a hundred thousand followers as an example, across his channels or her channels, um, and he wants to get, or she wants to get to a million as an example, you're saying that there's a science to do that. And to do that in a predictive fashion, cause science needs to be repeatable and predictable. There's like three things, whatever. I'm sure, you know more than me there. Uh, but, um, but you're saying that it is a science and that it can be done in a repetitive fashion. In other words, you could go from a hundred and 10 X that's in whatever, 30 days, if you understand the underlying science behind it.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. It's so essentially our viral content engineering process is applying the scientific method to creativity because it's kind of crazy. When we develop a cure, we develop a new vitamin supplement, uh, we have to leverage centuries of data to inform our decisions because we don't just start putting things into a bucket and then, oh, here's the vitamins, start taking it, or here's the cure, start taking it. But when it comes to creativity, when it comes to social media, there's billions and billions of data points available to us for absolutely free, yet people don't look at it because they want to be original. So the, the typical process is you start with brand guidelines, or you just jump to creating ideas, and then you, you do a slate of content, like a calendar of content, and then maybe you review the, the results monthly or quarterly, but that where's the data in that, like the data is at the end, like it's not informing all of that. And that's why I don't like this kind of spray and pray um, uh, format. So, so our, our process fundamentally always starts with research. So what does that mean? So typically, when we're working with a client, yes, we do look at the competition. But typically, your competition is telling you what not to do, which is important. But don't get me wrong, but it's not telling you what to do. So we will look at other content creators, other brands, other people in completely different industries, talking about completely different things, and seeing what the performance drivers are for them. When I say performance drivers, is like what is the content format? What's the delivery mechanism? What's the structure? What's their pacing? What's their tone? all of those things. And then we set a hypothesis saying, okay, these are the performance drivers. These are the things that really drive performance. Now we will create ideas around those performance drivers specifically for our brand. And then we will go into single production. So we only create one piece of content at a time so that we can then review the results and determine whether the hypothesis held true and then go back into the research phase. Because if you don't do that, you're not learning. And there's so much nuance in this. Like we were we were doing a, a client strategy call the other day with a an amazing woman who's a, a, a female uh, coach. And we were looking at another uh, clinical psychologist that's gone viral on TikTok consistently. She's got over 3 million subscribers. And we were just looking at it. And one of the nuanced details that we saw, is she creates a lot of intimacy in her videos. And one of the tools that she does is she always leans in to the video and uses her hands as she leans in it's small nuances like that that determine whether your video gets a thousand, 10,000 or a million views.
0: So fascinated <clears throat> excuse me. I'm fascinated by that, uh, Brendan, in the sense of how quickly do these things change? So, um, obviously if I look at the ecosystem of social media and you mentioned 200 billion pieces of content, that you know must be insane to to me, to measure in the first place, but then also things do change. Given the world's always in flux, so if you were to identify like you know this this influence, as you say, she leans forward. How long does something like that actually remain relevant? Um, and under what circumstances do these viral drivers or performance drivers um, you know change?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and, and the true answer is you don't know. It it depends. It depends on the performance drivers, but that's why you know our our viral content engineering process always starts with research. So no matter what change comes, no matter what new feature, no matter what new platform, we're always starting the creative process with research to identify is the performance drivers that we've used in the past still applicable. So, and then again, if you start using these performance drivers and they're working for you, you're going to know when they stop working for you. And then when they stop working for you, then you go back, you start doing the research again and looking for other performance drivers. That's why the research part is so critically important because it sets you up for long-term success, no matter what happens in the ecosystem. Do you ever stop researching in this context? No, I mean, it's it's fascinating. So we train a lot of people in the viral content engineering process, but um, a lot of people just don't do the research. They don't do it because they don't have the time. They don't want to do it. It's not interesting to them. Uh, and so we made a decision about two months ago where we're launching a new product where we're doing the research for people. So we're creating a product called Viral Trends where people sign up to a membership with us and every week. We're doing the research because we're doing it already. And then we're breaking down the performance drivers and explaining what the performance drivers are and giving key takeaways of how you can take these learnings and integrate it into their product. Our team personally loves the research. I love nothing more than I use social media every day, but I'm using it from the the standpoint of this got 10 million views. Why did I get 10 million views breaking it down? This only got a thousand views. Why didn't it do it? Mm. So we never stop that process. But again, like even if you're just starting out, find the references, maybe find one reference, one one channel and study the nuances put your content up next to their content and really be honest about what is the difference. Mm. Is is your content really better than theirs? And be honest with yourself. You probably, you'll
0: you'll start seeing the details. Yeah, I was going to say you'd probably Probably be hard pressed to say yes. It's comparable because if you, if it was comparable, your results would also be comparable. Yeah. Right.
1: So just and again, it's yeah, nuance. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's not. It's it, it's less about the content. It's more about the context. It's how you're you're wrapping your message because the most viral content creators. It's not like they're doing something so unique and different. It's their delivery mechanism. It's like, if you look at Joe Rogan, the biggest show on the planet, like there's a reason for that. Like he's creating an experience out of it. And there is definitely nuance into how he's delivering his content versus
0: other podcasts on the planet. Do you think he's aware of why he's successful? Cause from, you know, if you listen to him speak in the videos, remember when he, all that, he was getting a lot of heat on social media uh, not too long ago. And he was saying, you know, I started this thing just with some mates for some fun. Um, and now it's this behemoth and I don't even know how this thing actually came about. Um, and it, I'm curious to maybe get your view with maybe your research hats on for a moment, uh, Brendan, but what would you say, I know you mentioned the experience word, but underlying that um, experience is oftentimes subjective. Why do you think, was it just, why is he so successful? Is it just because he was first? Is it because he was there a contribution because he was obviously on TV Uh, With Fear Factor, he was already a relative media personality. There was the UFC. So there were other contributing factors over and above the channel itself or the podcast itself or the YouTube channel itself. Um, So I'm curious to get your view. Like, What would you describe or characterize as the underlying drivers for his success as the Joe Rogan experience?
1: Yeah, I definitely don't believe that TV was a contributing factor because there's many celebrities that have podcasts that don't have close And Joe wasn't a big celebrity. Like, yes, the UFC is huge now, but when he first started, it wasn't big. Uh, And in some ways, like, he's bigger than the UFC. Uh, I would say one of of the, the ways that he really drove his success is, and this is back before, you know, he really, he's still kind of on YouTube, but not, they don't post as much. But if you look at, they had two channels. They had the main channel and then they had the clip channel. And the Clip Channel really drove the virality of the whole podcast. And the genius of him is he could take a paleontologist or a historian, somebody you never heard of or may not have any interest in, and he makes it interesting for the general audience. That's what makes him so successful. And I I don't, I'm not going to say it was, um, I don't think he specifically, Engineered the success, but it's also not luck because he put in a lot of work over you know 10 years into this. And he is really in a, you know, interested in these subjects that he's talking about. And again, he will take people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different industries, different things, and he knows how to make that interesting. That is the real driver. like, how do you make somebody that doesn't like history? crave information about this this historian that they never heard about. This is again, what we talked about earlier is how do you make the general population care about something that they normally wouldn't care about?
0: Mm. Yeah. And I suppose that's an art. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned channels and so on and so forth. And obviously there's a lot of channels, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, podcasting, your website, email, um, and then publishers, medium, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you, were to, let's just say, because my audience are like founder entrepreneurs. So if you, let's just say you have a small team, right? There's maybe 10 people in your business um, and you are looking to grow a following, maybe influence and market, raise awareness of your product service, etc. If there was one channel that you would personally recommend to hedge your bets on, in other words, forget all the others, just do this one. What would this, that channel be for you?
1: yeah I typically don't answer the question that way. I will give you an answer, but I want to kind of preface with it really depends on the business. you know I always start with what's the business strategy what are we really trying to achieve? what is our product what is our service? what are the types of leads that we need? and then I look at the resources that we have what are what are the resources that we have to create content what are our strengths what are our weaknesses and then make it determine on what's the best platform with that said is one of the things that we talk about is the value of a view on and a follower on TikTok or Instagram versus a follow or a subscriber or viewer on YouTube. Like it's ten x more valuable on YouTube because of the length of time that they spend with your brand. Now YouTube's a lot harder because it's longer form content. Yes, they have YouTube Shorts, but that's it's it's a relatively new thing. So. If I had to say, let's invest in one, I would say YouTube. But with that said, there's so many other variables at play to make that informed decision. Like TikTok, there's amazing growth potential now. But again, is it relevant to our business goals? Are we going to be able to really convey our value to the core audience that we're trying to attract in a short form TikTok video or an Instagram reel? Hmm.
0: Yeah, I love the point there around uh, strategy because I think there's um, a fallacy about you have to be everywhere to be successful. And I think it actually causes um, a lot of marketing-orientated founders when they feel like they need to be everywhere because you, if you're everywhere and you don't have a team to support an everywhere strategy, you can wind up spread, you know, spreading yourself thin and doing a relatively crappy job at doing being everywhere when if you just chose... LinkedIn is an example, it's a business audience and you could focus your attention if you were in the B2B space yes. on LinkedIn and you could, it, my, my sense would be is that you would uh, produce a better content and brand experience if you chose not to be everywhere. Would you agree with that? Uh, I agree a hundred
1: percent. Now I will say in, in full transparency, like if we're working with a client that's focused on TikTok we say, we'll take that asset and upload it to Instagram Reels or YouTube Shorts and see what happens. Don't expect a lot. But if you're creating that asset, that short form asset, it takes you 10 minutes to upload it to those other platforms, but focus on worrying about the data of TikTok, the references with TikTok and studying that market. Um, but I agree with you 100%. Is, and it was interesting. You know, I was listening to an interview with Jonathan Ivey who worked for Steve Jobs. And he was asked, you know, what was the main thing that he taught you? And he said, or the most valuable thing he taught you. And it was focus. And he said, you know, Steve would always ask me every day, what did you say no to today? And, and Jonathan would say, he would have all these sacrificial things and said, well, I said no to this. I said no to this. I said no to this. And Steve's like, no, these are all things you don't want to do. What were the things that you did want to do and say no to? And it's a very hard thing to do, especially as an entrepreneur with creative energy and like the drive to succeed, to really narrow in and say, I'm going to focus on this specific area and I'm going to ignore the
0: rest. Yeah. It takes, it takes balls to make that decision, um, to choose. Cause I think, you know, you define yourself by what you say no to more than what you say yes to. A hundred percent. Yeah. Can I quickly talk to you, uh, maybe share, get you to share, um, Uh, some real world work that you've done. So I want to touch on um, Taylor Swift. I'm on your website at the moment. So obviously uh, this is a case study. Uh, You guys can check out uh, hookpoint.com and get the case study there. Um, So this was a Facebook uh, specific campaign. Um, I'd love for you maybe just to touch on um, how your team engaged with Taylor Swift to create a kind of a, 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 you know, a positive outcome on Facebook for for her?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I I worked with Taylor and her team very early on. She was not like a global superstar, but she was still well-known. I don't want to say well-known. Like the first time I met her and her manager was at the Grammys. I think it was like her first performance there. And one of the big things about Taylor was she really loved that custom interaction with fans. She wanted to give them a unique experience. Like she understood social media better than anybody before social media is big. And the one thing that she fundamentally understood is social media is not a one-to-many platform. Social media is a one-to-one platform. And what that means is you'll see so many people making the mistake of starting a video saying, hey, everybody, it's great to see everybody. Who's everybody? You know, we're on a, on this thing by ourselves, on a bus or on a couch or in the bed. Like it's a one-to-one platform. And, you know, she was struggling at the time of having a, you know, online destination and online um, community that can really foster that one-to-one relationship. So over the course of like two years, we really helped her refine that. But one of the tools that we built for, for her uh, was first, we had built a technology that could dynamically write code for you. So she could go in and modify every aspect of her website herself and change it to her mood, her tone, or whatever she wanted to do. And what we did when we had this core technology asset, we said, what if we gave that power to the fans? Because at the time we had studied that there was about 30 Taylor Swift fan sites where fans actually took the time to read and write code. We said, well, what about all the other fans that would love to have a custom Taylor Swift fan site and promote it to the world, uh, but doing it without having to learn to read and write code. So that's where we built this, application where you could turn your Facebook page into a custom Taylor Swift fan site in less than 60 seconds. So you would sign up, you'd give permissions to, to extract your name and your photos, and then it would insert it into a custom design that you choose from. And then you could go in there because you didn't have to write code. You could change any element of it yourself. So in, in a very short period of time, we went from 30 Taylor Swift fan sites to over 30,000 and each one was promoting Taylor's brand uh, to the world.
0: Well, congratulations on uh, all your success. I'm very interested to learn kind of more around, you know, the commercial side of things, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, there's obviously in the news, uh, everybody's been following uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Um, what are you, What's your view on this? Is this a good thing, a bad thing? What do you see as a consequence of this acquisition?
1: It's a good question. I really hope it's a good thing. Uh, it seems like a good thing, but you just don't know until it really takes shape. I think Elon is the reason that he did it is for private or not for privacy for freedom of speech, but freedom of speech is a very controversial subject. Mm. And it's just like, where do you draw that line between giving everybody the ability to say anything at any time versus, you know, people talking about violence or terrorism or things like that. So it's a very complicated issue. Uh, I'm excited to see what happens with it. I really hope that it makes it better, but it's it's a really complex subject to tackle. And I'm just going to be very interested to see with him really doing it solely, not from a profit-driven motive, uh, but from solely of trying to protect freedom of speech online. So uh,
0: it's going to be interesting. Do you think, I remember he put that poll out and he was like, you know, do you think Twitter is supportive of a free speech environment and something like that? Um, And he said, it's a very important poll. Make sure that you think about your answers. And most of the people said no. Um, Did you vote on that poll? Um, And even if you didn't, I'd love to maybe get your view. Um, Brendan, do you think that Twitter really was, you know, preventing free speech, quote unquote?
1: I'll answer it this way it's a very difficult problem to solve because of the scale that you're dealing with. I mean, how do you, you know, cause obviously artificial intelligence is getting better and smarter, but you can't have a human look at every single tweet and make a decision. Is this, is this promoting healthy communication and fall under freedom of speech? Because it's like, it's the old adage. You can't go into an airport or an airplane and, and scream fire or bomb you know, there's a reason for that to keep people safe. Now, some people may say that's not freedom of speech. Some people would say um, that, no, we should have the right to say anything or, you know, at at any point in time. And again, I'm not smart enough to answer that question, but it's it's really difficult. So a lot of smart people, especially during COVID, on all social platforms got shut down for talking about science and things like that. And it's not like an individual within these organizations clicked a button and shut them down. It's, you know, an automated system that's trying to get smarter and smarter and smarter, but you've got to understand the level of scale. You're talking about billions of people on these platforms, publishing billions of pieces of content to be able to police all of that is really, really difficult. Yeah. So I can see why a lot of people say it's not because there's a lot of stories and press of accounts getting suspended and things like that,
0: yeah,' I've, that's been going on on YouTube quite a bit. You know I've seen quite a few influencers who I don't know, they were doing something and they you know broke community guidelines or whatever um under the guise of free speech. Um and you know their entire YouTube channel of like I don't know a million, two million followers was just like deleted overnight, and the and the excuse is, hey, you broke a community guidelines. Um so that's probably an example of you know policing through algorithms um that can lead to situations that are potentially negatively unintended does it make sense
1: yeah and it's also you've got to like the government doesn't run these platforms these are companies these are businesses so the other question is is how does freedom of speech apply to YouTube to a Facebook to a TikTok when they control, because they own the business, they can control in in the terms of service and have community guidelines, and say this is what we accept, this is what we don't accept. So that's another challenge when it comes to this as well.
0: Mm. Um, I don't know whether you saw um, on uh, the news this week um, but we, uh, you know, Donald Trump was obviously banned from Twitter. It was almost like coming out at the same time uh, as Elon, you know, acquiring Twitter. And then uh, Donald was on, I think Fox. And he was like, listen, I'm not gonna go back to Twitter even if Elon allows me. Uh, What I'm gonna do is I'm actually gonna stay on truth uh, social. And there was like a one and a half million uh, wait list. And Donald Trump, Trevor Noah was saying the other day uh, that he hadn't posted in like two months. And so truth was a complete screw up. But the moment that uh, Elon bought uh, um, Twitter, suddenly i think it was like three days later elon tweeted he was like truth social is 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 more downloaded on itunes as an app than even twitter is so so what happened was everybody started now moving to truth and they fixed the back-end infrastructure problems and whatever but it's interesting to observe what's happening from a behavioral perspective because it seems like if you're a big enough brand like donald trump is you can just own that entire conversation on your own. So it's almost like a microcosm of what Elon's done in the sense of he's acquired this massive Twitter ecosystem. But what Donald's done, just by virtue of who he is and his influence, he's created an own channel that he, he owns entirely, but where he can control the conversation on his own. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like Taylor Swift creating her own social network for herself and then building NFTs and social tokens and things like that off the back of it. Do you you see that as a a trend that's going to be ongoing?
1: So this has been happening since the beginning of social media. Like I've seen it, many people try. And the one thing that people underestimate is how smart YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter are. They are engineering behavior They have behavioral scientists on staff that are ingraining subconscious desires and needs to result into their platform. And yes, it's very easy for somebody like a Donald Trump or even like a Taylor Swift to say, hey, go to this other website, sign up for my own private social network. It's another thing to retain them. And when we went back to retention is like, this is why the algorithms are all about retention because they know that fundamentally that is their whole business. And for somebody to say, hey, I'm going to build a better retention model than Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, that have been doing it for years and shift that behavior to say, don't go to Instagram anymore, go to Truth or to another platform, it's not that easy. Even like you look at TikTok, people think TikTok came out of nowhere. It didn't. I don't know when it started, but I remember at least six or seven years ago when it it started as Musical.ly and they've been working on it ever since. So there's a lot of people that have tried this and a lot of big names. I remember Scooter Braun had created an app around Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and some of the other biggest artists in the world uh, for their fans to go to. And that imploded. And you had some of the biggest people involved. It's not that they don't have the power to, to to get people to download something or sign up for something, but to get them to keep using it. Versus the other platforms that people are essentially already addicted to. It's it's a lot harder than than people think.
0: Yeah, because you really have to change the behavior itself, not just provide access to a new channel like Truth.
1: I mean, like the, the other big one that happened was Clubhouse. Mm. Clubhouse was the hottest thing for a short period of time. And then it faded off. They built a great product, but they didn't really have that the, the long-term vision of how we're going to retain this attention. And a lot of people just got burnt out of it and just went back to the same platforms
0: and the same platforms created the same features. Do you think there's room for another channel? I mean, you know, we've, we clubhouse you mentioned. There always is. Yeah.
1: yeah, There always is. Uh, and I think there will be other ones. It's just hard. It's just, it's just difficult to do. Uh, and I don't think we're going to wake up and tomorrow Facebook's gone or YouTube's gone because I can remember since the beginning of Facebook, how many times I, I've heard these doom and gloom things that Facebook's dead, Facebook's dying, Facebook's losing audiences and things like that. It's like, these guys are smarter than than you could ever imagine.
0: So it's not going to die.
1: No. <laughs> why do you think Why do you think Mark Zuckerberg is investing $10 billion a year into the metaverse?
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask Because he's not going to lose. <laughs> yeah. Especially from a retention perspective. If I look at my young child uh Mr. Master Brown I call him um <laughs> um and his attention on YouTube and gaming for me I can see in 10 15 years time once the metaverse technology infrastructure is really caught up and we figured out exactly what uh the metaverse should be I can see him living there like genuinely you know um, so for me it's not a stretch in my imagination to see how the concept of the metaverse which is getting a lot of heat uh, from a lot of people at the moment, it's like, oh, Zuckerberg doesn't get the metaverse; he's an idiot, blah 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 blah. And maybe that, and, and maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not smart enough to know for sure. Um, but what's your take on the metaverse? Is this something that you see as being a permanent reality in the not too distant future?
1: I, I, it depends on what you mean, not too distant future. To me it's not exciting for the reasons that is exciting for your son. Like I'm not in game. I'm not a gamer. You know, I just, I've never been a gamer. I see the the tremendous application for that audience. I don't see the application for the average person just yet. I see what people are talking about, but most of the focus when you look at it is really around gaming. And I think there's, and gaming is a huge audience. Don't get me wrong. But when we talk about the general population, I don't see it yet. I'm not saying it's not going to be there, but it is so early. I think it's going to go through some massive transfer transformations. And you know, it's like you mentioned, some people call Zuckerberg an idiot. He may not win, but he is definitely not an idiot. You know, him buying Oculus early on was one of the smartest investments ever because he's seeing, especially if you're an advertiser, you've seen all the News stories about iOS 14 and, and impacting tracking of ads and things of that nature. He went off and he bought the hardware. He's like, I'm going to own the hardware of the metaverse. In addition, I'm going to try and own the metaverse itself. Willie, who knows? Um, he's investing far more than anybody else in the space. But for for me personally, I, I just think it's too early to determine because I look at things from a macro level of the larger. The larger landscape, I understand like nft utilities and the blockchain of how that can apply into businesses and things of that nature, but when it comes to the metaverse, I think it's just outside of the gaming application it's just it's just super early and it really needs to evolve some more
0: yeah, it does uh, just very quickly, I'm just cognizant of time there brendan um you've obviously also written a, a book called Hook Point: uh, How do you stand out in a three Second world uh, just very quickly, what's the premise to that? Um, what does our audience need to know about that?
1: Yeah. So it goes back to the world that we're living in today, 4 billion content creators pushing 200 billion messages. And a hook point has three key pillars is the first key pillar is grabbing attention because if you can't stop somebody in their tracks in the first few seconds, whether it's on social media, email, LinkedIn, or even trying to get a meeting, you get lost in the noise, but it's not just about grabbing attention. The second key pillar is holding attention because Attention with no substance doesn't really mean anything. We're not talking about clickbait here or tricking people. But then the third core pillar is how are you monetizing that attention? Because if you're not turning that attention into your driving your business goals, your business growth, then what are you doing it for? You know, going going viral for the sake of going viral. If it doesn't grow your business doesn't grow your goals. Or even if you're nonprofit, if it doesn't increase your donations, then what's the value there? Does that mean you have to sell in every post or every piece of content? No, but there needs to be a fundamental um, underlying strategy. So the hook point is
0: basically how to master those three key pillars. And where can our audience get their hands on that book?
1: Uh, it's basically sold um, wherever books are sold, Amazon, uh, you can go to book.hookpoint.com as well. We have some like add-ons and things that you can get with it, but basically anywhere you buy books, it's
0: it's available. All right, cool. Um, so two more questions from my side. So you obviously mentioned that you have been in the social space right from the very beginning, um, and you you now I would regard as probably be more deep into the research side of things and and what and the science behind what makes something go viral and how to really be successful, you know, on the social media, um, sort of uh, ecosystem. Um, My question is, if you could get into a time machine and go back to yourself right from day one on social media and give yourself a piece of advice about this space that we find ourselves in around social marketing, social selling, social influence, all that kind of stuff, what would that one piece of advice be?
1: Mastering the art of grabbing attention. That's the fundamental skill set that you need to master in any form of communication. I mean, there's other advice that I'd give myself because I was too early with a few things on social media too. But um, if there was like an overarching theme, it would be that.
0: All Um Second last question is, um, what's broken about social media in your view? And maybe if I could give context there. This morning I came across this video by Dove. It was an ad uh, by Ogilvy. And what they did was, I'll send you the link on the chat here, um afterwards just for you to check out for references. But um, the idea was that uh, toxic beauty advice has been normalized. In other words, you've got these influencers who are like, yeah, well, you know, if you want to, you know, um, uh, you know, lose weight or eat less or use these skin peels," there's all these advices and blah, blah, blah. And they put the mom and the daughter in the room and they said, what do you think about social media? And the moms are like, yeah, th- no, my children aren't influenced by them, uh, that much or whatever. And then they asked the child to bring out their phone and then start scrolling on like Instagram, for instance. And then what they did was they used a deep fake technology and they superimposed the mother's face on top of the influencer or the person giving this toxic beauty advice. And the parents, it's amazing to watch because I've got a young girl and I, I got quite emotional about it. It's beautifully shot, done by Ogilvy. Um, and I was like, holy shit. And the moms are like, Holy shit like this is this is unacceptable as a mother, I would never give this advice, yet, my children are being subjected to this advice consistently on their own without very little supervision um, and that 's a problem for me so that 's one example in your experience. what would you say is broken about social media in general today
1: well i mean i the work that I do is is it's broken from the standpoint that 99% of people using social media are failing at using its full potential. So I really look at it from a marketing and business landscape. But to me, I mean, is what you're saying a problem? Yes. 100%. If social media didn't exist today, would that type of communication still be happening? Yes. Cause I can remember when I was going to school pre, pre social media, and the toxicity of what kids would talk about in those inner circles and the trouble and the things that we would get into social media is a tool. Social media itself is not doing it. It's the people that are creating the content on it that are doing it. And to me, it goes back to the beginning of the conversation is how are we healing ourselves? You know, how, how do we educate people to heal themselves and to, to learn how to, deal with anxiety and stress and trauma and all of those things because that at its core is what causes people to post negativity to react in negative ways to to misguide and to mislead people so to me i think it's less about social media is the problem and it's more about how as human beings do we support each other in in healing the things that we need to heal because that distress causes the things that you're talking about. And to me, it's, you know, and I think it also starts back to the education system. To me, the education system is fundamentally broken. Mm. Like they don't teach any of these things in school. They teach you chemistry and math and science. And I'm not saying that those things aren't valuable, but I think we need to teach people how to be better human beings on the planet. And I think if we do that fundamentally, then the impact of what we're posting
0: on social media will change. So Brendan, I love that last point to resonate with that greatly. What's your why then? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning in Mexico? (laughs) I love learning.
1: I love learning and then teaching. And that's a big part of why we do so much research is we can only have impact if we really understand where things are going, how things are working. So that's, to me, what gets me out of bed is what am I going to learn today? And then how can I take that learning and teach other people so that they can achieve their goals and
0: aspirations? Amazing stuff. Brendan, Kane. thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real privilege having you here. Uh, Everybody who's been uh, tuning in, following the show, thank you once again for being here. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. We will see you all again soon. Hi there, guys, and thank you so much for checking out The Matt Brown Show. If you want more content like this, head on over to YouTube where you can catch my Million Dollar Principles channel and more interviews on The Mac Brown Show YouTube channel. Get weekly thought pieces and advice and so, so, so much more. And don't forget to like and subscribe for more Mac Brown Show episodes.